Hunted by the Kraken, the sinister leader of the Rule Empire, Beverly Jordan must control her powers, known only as the Priori, to survive. Believing her powers fit only for destruction and ruin, Beverly and her brother Charlie set off on a journey to find the fabled haven of Kriana, an underwater world where one can learn to split the fabric of time and manipulate the lines of power, where winged aliquines soar through the air and the shadows lurk in waiting for someone to release them. Will Beverly escape the grasping clutches of the Kraken? Or is she destined to become his weapon? Chapter 21 Flames His beard grew unchecked. The skin of his cheeks was sunken into the hollows of his skull. The matted hair hung in dirty tendrils, and his pallid skin was smeared with filth and covered with blemishes and cuts. Out of his dark and indistinct features, green eyes blazed through the gloom, with only a glimmer of sanity that was diminishing with each passing minute. In a dank corner he quivered, his eyes darted about, looking for, listening for, flames. His croaking scream echoed through the cavern, his eyes unable to move from the flames within those consuming black eyes. Finally, he was released. Curled into a ball, his body jolted with sobs. I didn't need you after all. How auspicious for me. How unfortunate for you. The sinister man's voice was full of malice and amusement. Not wishing to make eye contact again, the ragged man curled up tighter, squeezing his eyes shut. There is a chance to redeem yourself, came the man's unexpected comment, dangling a promise with each sugar-coated word. The cringing man's breathing stilled. Carefully, his face reappeared, his eyes clouded and confused. He did not dare show hope for there was always a trick or price to be paid with the Kraken. I would not have someone else do the task if it was not necessary. I was banished, and that has its own restrictions. It appears your services as an agent are useful yet again. I have opened the door. She will come to you, though inadvertently. Lure her out of Kriana's protection. You may achieve this however you wish, as long as she is alive. The Kraken drew the trembling man to his feet, as though holding a delicate child. His voice took on a sharp edge. Stay here and rot if you prefer. Then, without faltering, the Kraken stroked his sunken cheek with a soft touch. Just think. All you have to do is lure her out, and you will have everything. The mounting tension erupted at my cry, transforming all into chaos. Another tremor, more severe than the last, struck hard, throwing everyone from their feet. My mother's head fell from the side of the water fountain and was submerged in the pond at its base. Shaken from my shock, I stumbled towards her, my mind reeling at the feelings I still had for her after all she had done. Suppressed guilt warred with a lifetime of bad memories. What had the rule done to her after our escape? For surely if she was here, she had been caught. I had thought I cared nothing for her, but she looked so helpless lying there in the water. Somehow, I couldn't let her die. The ground shook violently with another earth shake. All around me, People screamed and scattered in every direction. Never had I seen such a panicky mob of people. He's found us! Cried a voice above the din. It is the Dark Ages again! Shrieked another. Kriana is lost! Run for your homes! Bolt the doors! My head whipped around as I recognized the last voice. 
Master Elitri was right behind me and gave me a push in the back as we continued to run towards the fountain. Why add to the panic? I asked, breathless. Less damage will be done if they are safe in their homes. We reached the dragon-shaped fountain as the ground stilled. Performing the trick I had done many times, I levitated my mother out of the fountain and onto the grass. Her wet dress clung to her body, and her head hung limp. Her hands were white, and her full mouth, now a dark shade of blue. Master Elitri reached forward and touched her arm. His magic spilled forth to flow through her body. Mother's skin grew warm under my hands as the master raised her temperature. He placed the same hand on her forehead, his black and white magic bringing her mind into consciousness. Her eyelids fluttered and opened. The blank look in her eyes made me recoil. They reminded me of the dream, Elliot. Who am I? I do not know where I'm from or where I go. My memories have flown, my old life no more. I encountered the Kraken and knew nothing of before. I frowned. Her voice was cold. Her statement so frosty, so impersonal. She had always spoken harshly to me, but never like this. The phrasing seemed forced and not her own. That's not how she speaks. I told the master. No, he agreed. It is the Kraken's way of sending a message. What message? He can wipe memories of anyone I know? That is only the personal cream on top of the pie. A little aside to strike fear into your heart. I averted my eyes and clenched my jaw. Maybe it was better this way that she had lost her memory and did not remember her life with Charlie and me. It had never been a happy one. The master sat back on his heels, body rigid. The Kraken is saying he can send people through Kriana's defences. Master Elitri had barely finished when Mother grabbed my arm, her eyes unseeing, forcing me closer. In horror, I watched as her eyes turned to a midnight black and flickered unerringly. When she spoke, her voice was deeper, that of a man's, hard and triumphant. Her hand squeezed my arm, clenching tighter with each word. You did not think you can hide forever. I will send others and Kriana will end. Her eyes rolled to the back of her head, and her body arched in a spasm before lying limp once more on the ground. Her hand slid from my arm to fall beside her. Clenching my hand to get the blood flowing, I moved to cradle her head in my lap. Master Elitri, tall and grave, stood back and regarded my mother, his stance commanding and completely unlike his normally mild self. It was pure luck that the square was empty of all life. The message of the intrusion had been carried swiftly along lines and carried by sprites. A jolt of magic told me that Elytri had also sent for reinforcements, a brief message calling names, followed by a quick image of his location. Beverly, Master Elytri said quietly, please call Arabella once again. I need to send a message. As gently as I could, I lowered my mother's head to the ground, taking off my jacket with a calm that amazed me, and placed it under her head to protect against further shakes. Bending over the surface of the fountain, I called Arabella's name. Within seconds of it leaving my mouth, I saw her form rise through the water dragon and out of one of its claws. Her familiar ink-blue ringlets and green body emerged from the water. I'm sorry, Beverly. The dryads have not yet responded to. That's that's not why I called, Arabella. I signalled Master Elitri to begin his message. He hesitated, glancing between Arabella and me. Say it out loud, or I will ask Arabella later. She won't keep secrets from me. I told him firmly.
If you want me for your enchanter mage, I will not be kept in the dark anymore, even if it means hearing something I wish not to hear. He sighed his agreement. Of course, forgive me. Arabella, I need you to take this message to the head adept of Narin. Inform her that the Kraken has discovered Kriana and has proved his ability to transport people into the city. From now on, there is to be no correspondence between Kriana and the other cities by decree of the Circle of Magic. He paused for a moment, as though seeking my permission. I gave it. And by decree of the Enchanter Mage, as a mass evacuation to Narin will endanger their population and ours, I, Nigel Elletree, believe that the Circle of Magic will vote for the emergency destination of Aris. Please inform all cities of our discovery, and we will contact them in one annual cycle. If anyone attempts entry into the cities in the next month, they are to be given one warning shot to leave, or they forfeit their life. Be quick, Arabella, and return to Aris when you are done. Panic gripped me then, and I sat down hard on the edge of the fountain. Burying my head in my hands, I rocked back and forth. Not again! The respite had been so sweet, but how long did I truly think it would last? Even after the cave-in, I had denied it. The hunting would never cease. No matter where I was, I would be followed, and those I had taken refuge with would be destroyed. Kriana, my home, would be destroyed. How long would I be able to stay at Aris? Until it was destroyed too? I had seen Aris, inside Leo's mirror. Large spires of stone reaching high into the sky. Leo said the rule could not sense us. But we could also not sense them. It sounded too much like a prison. Next time, would it be too late? Beverly. The commanding tone in the master's voice forced me to look up. He regarded me with a stern sympathy. I know what is going through your mind, but you have to hold those feelings at bay. Courage isn't the absence of fear, but the will to go on in the face of fear. We knew what we were doing when we took you in. Right now, an evacuation has to be carefully thought out and planned. The Kraken has only sent your mother so far but who knows how long until he sends more and how many he can send at one time. The circle of magic needs your help. In his considerate way, he turned around to give me some privacy. I took a shuddering breath. He was right, of course. Thousands of lives were at stake at that very moment. Lives I could save. Reaching out with my mind, I called Shima. Her grumpy reply helped to bring me out of self-pity. Now was the time to leave pity behind and step up. Taking the only first step I could think of, I asked Shima to rally the Aliquines who served at the Circle of Magic Council. Master Elytri had begun instructing the recently arrived Madame Cinder on the details of my mother's care. Only when I tapped him on the shoulder did he turn around. I've arranged for the Circle of Magic Steeds to take them to the forest. I know what's at stake. I will do everything I can. I said. He squeezed my shoulder and said softly, It fills me with pride to see you taking up the role. Before I could reply, Shima's voice nosed into my head and spoke. We must depart. Time will not freeze for you to have a mental breakdown. It took me three tries before I could mount with my fluid legs. The trip through the fabric between worlds was more draining than I had first assumed. Or perhaps it was my trepidation at attending my first circle of magic. Would they despise me for destroying their peace? I pushed the thought to one side. There was no point in dwelling on it. I would see soon enough. Here we go, I thought, 
as the forest began to pass under Shima's airborne form. The first step to escape had begun again. Beverly, what is going on? I know you know! Cypress pulled my bag from my fumbling fingers, tied the strings together in three decisive movements, and threw it on top of his and Satinay's bags. Your father has told you everything you need to know. You should have left already. I replied, retrieving the abandoned bag and slinging it over my shoulder. Though I would not say so, I was glad not to do the final stages of evacuation on my own. Don't leave us in the dark, said Charlie. I threw a guilty glance at him, ignoring his comment with effort. I hadn't the time to tell him about our mother yet. I couldn't afford to until we were on the road to safety. It would waste too much precious time. Even with our best efforts, the Kraken was getting men into the city. Though it appeared he could not transport a group of them, and all were non-magical, all it took was one person with a will to destroy. Fires had been breaking out across all city terraces, smoke gathering in a haze on the roof of the glass dome. Only with the help of the Empress were we able to keep the rule out until we had evacuated the majority of the city to the tunnel. I reached out to stroke Shima's neck. Shima, go and find the Vinci children. Please carry them to Aris. I, I will travel on foot. Shima backed away from me, her whole body balking at the suggestion. The little girl broke her leg during the Earthshakes. I promise Mrs. Vinci, and I can't go back on my word. Now go! Shima's sense of honour forced her to grudgingly accept my command. You won't like what I'll do to you if you do not follow. Was her only threat as her powerful wings propelled her into the air. Satinay continued with our argument as if there had been no interruption. Why is the city being evacuated? She demanded. Who was the woman in the fountain? What is the big secret? Look! I cried. I'll tell you on the way. Right now we need to get moving. We must go through the forest to the tunnel in the cavern wall. It will take us two or three days to get to Aris. At least tell us why you are privy to a circle of magic council when those who are not members are forbidden to attend. Asked a frustrated Charlie. Don't you get it? The Kraken has found Kriana. Because of me. There's no time. I shrugged his hand from my shoulder. Immediately, I regretted it as a hurt expression crossed his face. I'm sorry, I said with a sigh. It's just, I want us to get out of here before anything else happens. I understand, he replied. I gripped his hand, hoping to reassure him, but it just fell limp and cold in mine. Swallowing, I let go and set off at a brisk walk for the forest track. We were heading out with the last of the evacuees, and the tremors were getting more and more severe. Ahead of us were a straggling group of evacuees, a family. As we came level with the back of the group, I looked over straight into the brown eyes of Syra. Cradled in his arms was a little boy, a miniature version of himself, too small to move at their hurried pace. Aunt, can you take Ty? Syra murmured to the short-haired woman next to him never taking his smouldering eyes off me. She took the child without comment as he dropped back from the pack. You've got a lot of nerve running away with all that magic. He spat. You're nothing like the people whose magic you carry. They would have stayed and fought. They are thousands. One person against an army's stupidity. I replied coldly, forging ahead of him and his family. This was no time to rise to some idiot boy's bait. The twins and Charlie drew in close around me, their solidarity easing the sting of Syra's words. Only halfway through the forest, we stumbled as a particularly violent lurch rippled beneath. Crashes sounded all around us as forest giants ripped their roots from the dirt and slammed into the ground. The pungent odour of leaf litter thickened, 
and a soft layer of dust from the cavern above covered us. Run! I cried. The uncontrolled fear in my voice had them reacting with alacrity, and they began to sprint. I hadn't run far before the lack of my sword thumping at my side stopped me short. Groping the left-hand side of my belt, my worst fears were confirmed. My most beloved possession, the sword my father had given me, was the only item I had forgotten in the mad rush. The sword was not only a powerful magical instrument, but all I had to remember Papa. I would not let the looters get it. I spun around and sprang forward, only to feel a hand grip my arm and jerk me back. As I thumped into Cypress's chest, his other hand snaked around my free arm. Don't be foolish. Can't turn back now, no matter what you've left behind. He cried, his calm composure forgotten. My sword, my sword! I babbled desperately. It's everything to me, I I can't leave it behind. An inscrutable look flashed in his eyes. Unceremoniously, he propelled me back the way we had come with incredible speed. It was all I could do to keep up with his flying legs. Leave the damn sword! bellowed Charlie behind us. Despite the distressed calls of Charlie and Satinay, Cypress did not falter. Nor did he stop for Syrah who stepped into our path as we sprinted past his racing family. Instead, He flung him to the side and pulled me along in his wake faster than I had thought possible. Call it, he demanded, as the globe light began to filter through the trees with increasing strength. We skidded to a halt at the boundary of the forest. Willing myself to see the lines of power, I deduced which of them ran through my room and which ran through the chest at the end of my bed. Then. I picked up a line and hummed a quick tune of summoning. The line's energy flooded with new vigor as it absorbed the sword pushing it towards me through its magical conduit. Come on, I muttered, watching the bulge in the line travel closer. I reached my hand out, knowing from experience that the line would regurgitate it about a stride length and a half in front of me and I would have to leap forward to catch it by the hilt. Steady, I thought, my legs coiled to spring. Not too soon or you won't have a hand. I began a slow count. Three, two. The ground shivered and then began to heave. One. I sprang forward and my hand met cool metal, the vines on the hilt fitting like a glove in my palm. With great difficulty, I sheathed the sword as the ground rolled under my feet. Only Cypress's firm grip held me up. On the edge of the forest was Syrah, his expression infused red with anger. Another shiver threw him into the air, hurtling the emerging Satinay and Charlie to the ground. Syrah landed hard with the sound of rock falling into empty space. My mind pounced on the inconsistency of a noise that could not come from Syrah. Another shockwave rippled through the ground. I fell to my knees and saw a plume of dust rising from the direction of the underground tunnel. We gazed in horror at the pile of rubble reaching high above the forest canopy, sealing the entrance. Charlie was the first to break the silence and cobble a plan. We're trapped! We have to get out! He glanced about wildly, until his eyes fell upon the doorway we had used to enter the city almost a year ago. From this side, it had the appearance of an archway made of stone, pressed into the wall of the cavern. From the other side, the doorway had looked like a cave-in, impenetrable and final. Charlie took off at a run for the doorway. I dashed after him, used to his sudden impulses and ideas. The others were slower to respond, and a fair gap opened between us in our mad dash to escape the unexpected trap. The stairway to Evetide Bay was, of course, the only exit out of the city now. If we were to travel to Narin, we would be refused entry. It was unlikely we could clear the collapsed tunnel to Iris before the soldiers in the city came to investigate. 
and all travel spheres to the surface had been destroyed weeks ago when the Kraken's weapon had been activated for a second time. I didn't fancy our chances of hiding in the city or the fabric between worlds. Lunging forward, I reached in front of Charlie just in time to remove the magical barrier stretched across the doorway. The barrier, made up of minuscule symbols, recognized the magic in my aura and retreated into the ancient stones of the archway. Charlie, ignorant of the split-second exchange, careered through the emaciated doorway and into the dim, eerie light beyond. To his credit, though we were within talking range as we leapt the stairs two at a time, Charlie did not once try to remind us why we were now dashing up the winding stairs into unknown danger. Halfway along our ascent, we were forced to slow our pace as the peculiar light of the glowworms was not bright enough to reveal the frequently crumbling steps. Charlie was now so far ahead that whenever we rounded a bend, we would just catch a flash of his travelling coat. Trusting that his yell would announce the end of the winding staircase, we moved as fast as we dared up the slope, straining to watch our feet. Fear drove me ever upward though my thighs ached. Of the group, Cyrus' breathing was the most erratic, though he complained the least for which I was thankful. Fit from frequent runs and sword practice, the twins and I continued at a steady pace. Realizing that we were blundering into the unknown unarmed, I drew my sword and held it in a tight grip. Ahead, the muffled grating sound was snatched away by the magical wind that inhabited the stairway. Charlie's light footsteps ceased. Silence enveloped us, interrupted only by the constant thumping of our footfalls. I heard a distant cry as I approached the last corner, but it was muted in an instant, with no time to discern its meaning. Rounding the final corner, I glanced up and saw Charlie's tall shadow cast upon the wall of the sandy cavern above. My relief was short-lived, as to the left of Charlie's perfectly still shadow was another. Another shadow? The brethren? I thought in breathless confusion. The left shadow's hands flashed down, appearing to pinch nothing, and pulled the nothing hard. The shadow that was Charlie had its feet pulled from underneath it and landed hard on its back with a moan. The unknown shadow pulled out an object that caused my heart to stop and my feet to fly the last stretch of steps to the top of the staircase. The knife shone dull red in the light, its hilt encrusted with rubies. Three quarters of the way up the blade, pointed spikes arched towards the hilt like upturned waves. The blade was double-pointed and charged with magic, grey and bleak. There stood a man, just fifteen strides away, his knife held over the winded Charlie. His once sleek hair was now matted, bristles adorned his unshaven face, his dark cloak hiding the rest of his body in shadow. His eyes, which once held his character and soul in their green depths, were now blank voids of nothingness. No emotion, no purpose, just darkness. Elliot's blank eyes held mine, mocking me. A slight twitch was the only warning he gave before he bowed his head and drove the blade deep into Charlie's stomach. My legs started forward. In slow motion, I saw the magic in the blade absorb my brother's life force, a grey tide overwhelming his golden glow, and his blood coating the blade. Charlie! I was at his side within seconds, but even that was too long. Sinking to the ground, I gripped his limp hand, hoping against hope that I could bring him back to life. As soon as I touched his cold, clammy hand, I felt a rush and a landscape opened out before my eyes. Everything was grey and formless, 
except for the surging current of a great river. It swept off into the distance where a large cloud of spray told of a waterfall. It was the great river of death, made of the tears of the dead and those who loved them, cascading down to bring souls into the afterlife. Struggling in the distant water near the falls was Charlie. I could see that the sword had taken it all, every bit of life energy within him. I could heal the wound, but I had no idea how to replace his vitality. My tears fell into the relentless tide of the river. There was a look of acceptance on his face. The expression that blazed forth strongest was love. He who had no magic, somehow he knew. And I knew he was only struggling, so he could say goodbye to me. Forgive me, he cried. Then, he blew me a kiss. I will love you always. In one last feat of strength, he stood and dived over the edge of the falls. Don't leave, I shrieked. But he was already gone. Not swept away, but facing death with courage. Behind me, I could hear the twins and Syra clear the last stair and skid to a stop. I let go of my brother's hand, and my vision returned to the cavern. I shouldn't have let Charlie rush ahead. It was my job to protect him. It was the Priori's job to protect him. It should have been me. He should have attacked me. Inside me, uncontrollable rage began to build. Through my glazed vision, I looked at the cold face of the man who had done this. All he needed was me, and he had done this. In a fury, I rose to meet him. As I charged Elliot, silent, my sword raised to meet his. His expression changed to intense fear, his feet shifting back. My moves were flawless, fueled by a wrath that gave tremendous strength and speed to every blow. Elliot's blocks became clumsy, the sour smell of his sweat tainting the air. Almost mechanically, he swung his sword to meet my ferocious onslaught, never given a chance to attack. The strength of my blows forced him back along the passage until we were almost running along the tunnel, he in retreat. I in pursuit. Shadows, the brethren, swirled in a chaotic vortex around us, beseeching, imploring. I snarled at them. You're in the way! Clumsily, Elliot ducked, jumped and blocked the blows while stumbling backwards, feeling the ground behind with his feet. In a brief respite between swings, the brethren so thick I could barely see Elliot slammed his hand against a whale carved into the wall. Rocks slid past, scoring Elliot's back, and the outside world was revealed. An icy wind blasted us accompanied by a fierce driving rain, which hid all features behind its cold curtain. The air was charged with an electrifying energy brought on by the worst of storms. Green lightning cracked the sky lighting the bay in a brief moment of radiant brilliance. Elliot stood, a tall silhouette against the emerald fury. The charged air gave me a second wind I did not know I needed. Finally breaking my silence, I released a war cry and swung my sword over my head, bringing it down as I ran through the shadows, out into the vicious storm. Bent double against the wind, Elliot barely met my sword. The strength of my blow drove him back, and he tried to regain stability. In a flash of lightning, Elliot stepped back onto the cliff edge. Throwing his arms up, he managed to balance before a thunderclap boomed. He fell. My sword arm dropped to my side. Frozen inside. I walked to the edge of the ledge and looked down the long drop to seething ocean. A feeling of deep satisfaction filled me, but I knew, later, 
the guilt and sorrow would come. Sheathing my sword, I moved away, lest I too fall to my death in the bay's icy depths. I stood, devoid of emotion. Charlie! Oh, Charlie! Water ran in rivulets down my hair and face and cascaded from my clothing. In the distance, Satinay called from the entrance, pleading me to come in, out of the storm. As my senses began to trickle back, I felt it. Something rotten and sinister just out of eyesight. Caution slowing my movements, I turned my body to the right, unsheathing my sword. I peered into the darkness, but could see nothing beyond the foggy screen. Green lightning flashed, forcing me to throw up a hand to shield my eyes. A hooded figure stood not ten strides away, dark and ominous. It seemed to gather darkness around it like a cloak. Charged air flowed in the space between us. An intense force drew my eyes to the dark oval where a face hid in shadow. The figure, as though mimicking the lightning, flung off its hood. In an instant, I was engulfed in the agony of invisible flames. And hello and welcome to uh, episode 26, but... Chapter 21, for those of you following in hexadecimal, of Priori. <laughs> and I, I believe we've got the entire crew with us today. So we've got, Yay! of course, our fine author, Emily Craven. <laughs> the excellent Sam Piaggio. Hello! The outstanding intern of awesome. Hello! Yay! We also have Colin Smith. Bonsoir, mon ami. Yay! And we have Kevin Powell. Good luck! Yay! <laughs> and I think we have me. At least we have most of me. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> All of me. So, um, sh shall we just jump right into talking about this episode? Because, oh my god! <laughs> I'm wearing a black armband now. <laughs> <laughs> so, Emily, when you wrote this, was like a phrase like, mule kick to the sternum in your diary? <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, yes. Emily just likes to hurt people. I like to throw my characters in front of buses. Uh, that would be kind. This is no. Look. <laughs> I see. Charlie's actually one of my favorite characters, and I don't know at what point I was. <laughs> I would hope so, um, but I don't know at what point I was like, it's a good idea to kill him off, like stab him specifically. No. If you think about it, it's almost like a really bad trade. She gets her mother back mm. and then, like, trades her in for Charlie. Yeah, but <laughs> is her mother kind of old or not? Is it really yeah. her mother? Is it, you know, her mother's shell? Mm. Yeah. I suppose what she's actually trading Charlie for is some sort of closure on everything that's gone wrong. Mm. Like, Charlie sort of helped her escape the first time and represents, you know, her hiding from her problems and stuff like that, and now she's been... Charlie's taken her on the second escape, taken her to actually confront the thing that's been behind all this the whole time. Oh, and she's found so, her found oh. her life path as well because you know she's mm. been she's found out that she has the potential to be an enchanter. Mm. So yeah, she's she's crossed over into that. Oh, I kind of know my path now, and, yeah, then, yeah. and then to have that kind of rug pulled out from under her, and you know the yeah. the place falling down around her ears is. Yeah, and this is, this is like with regards to the life path. There's a couple of lines in this in this chapter that I really dug, where she sets terms for other people. She's like, "If you want me to do this, here's what's happening." Yeah, yeah great. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. So good. Yeah. And and the other thing that I sort of um, I probably unconsciously did and then embroidered when I went back over it was that we we place a lot of um, importance and faith in symbols. Like so for her the sword that was her father's, right. that was like her symbol, right? That was the thing that she defended herself with. That was the thing that connected her to her father. That was the thing that connects her to her past, connects her to the NNA that led her to Kriana. And so she 
it basically stops them from escaping. Like, like yeah. she, she pauses it so that they, they don't actually end up escaping through that because she mm. has to collect this symbol, which she has sort of held up, when really um, I think that the, the kind of unconscious message there was is that we should be looking less to symbols and more to people. Mm. Right, okay, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, mm. It didn't even hit me. Yeah, and the fact that Charlie's kind of a legacy of her father as well. Exactly. Mm. There's a whole heap of things that we kind of, you know, that we hold up as talismans where we're like, if we have this thing, I will have good luck. And so we all have like our little, you know, lucky charms and, and things like that when it's really the stuff that, that, that makes us, that is what sees us through rather than the symbol itself. There are a few sly things that you managed to slip in here amidst the chaos that I really dug, where you're like, oh, and here's how these characters have changed their relationship, or here's another thing that's happening in amidst basically everyone going, oh, we've got to get out of here, we've got to, we've got to move on. And they're great seeds, basically, for hopefully they, these characters are going to see a, a moment of peace or a chance to catch their breath before the end of the story to have some of those land. You're talking about Syrah mainly? Yep. <laughs> and Cyprus and just foresh- foreshadowing, guys. Just just let you know, just foreshadowing. Yeah. He's not just oh, and, the designated uh, dick. Yeah. Elliot's back as well. Yeah. Well, in a manner of a broken, in a, broken yeah, well, Elliot, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was kind of thinking, well, uh, that, that was always in the back of my head that, oh, maybe there's some redemption for him and, you know, he'll do the right thing and turn against the Kraken and everything will be great, but no. Yeah, I was I was sure that he was going to turn out to be a good guy after all this, like, yeah, uh, stuff about him being a bad guy. <laughs> I kind of like, like the fact uh, that he didn't, but not because he chose the bad side, it's just... Yeah. Like a regular human being, he just did not have enough to fight back. He just couldn't. Yeah, he just, he just wanted relief. He had those shades of addiction about him, yeah. mm-hmm. I think, in the writing, and that kind of came through really strongly, even though it wasn't really explicitly said. That's what it read like to me, I guess. You know, like when you're always caught on the back foot, it's just so hard to recover. So early on he's tossing about whether or not he hands Beverly in and then he ends up getting, you know, he gets caught on the back foot with the giant whale thing in Eve Tide. And then, you know, the Kraken's got him again. And and then now, like, he, he got in and he kind of yeah. drew Beverly out with killing Charlie. But then he was not, it was almost as though he wasn't expecting the sort of ferocious attack that came afterwards. And he's mm. just always just, just that one, one step back. Mm. Yeah, right. Um, I thought it was yeah. really interesting and really visceral too that when Beverly squares up with Elliot, she doesn't use magic. She's like, I've "Got my sword, yeah. you're going down." Yeah, right. <laughs> the old-fashioned way. Yeah. We're doing this old school, you and I. <laughs> Charlie is always just throughout the whole book. He's kind of, um, you know, he's a fighter, but he's also quite accepting of mm. the things that happen. And yeah. um, and and so she, yeah, so she says sort of goodbye to him in the river that is death. And um, that's sort of the only magical thing that happens before. Oh, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Before she is like, I wish to draw blood. <laughs> and, I, again, I think it's also another one of those things where she's kind of decided that she's not going to use the priori to kill anymore either. She was constantly feeling like, that it was just, it could only be used for killing, and that's why mm. she didn't want to use it. Now that she's learned that's not the case, well, she's like, I can choose not to use it for killing, which is the mm. thing I was actually afraid of to begin with. Mm. Can I? Is there another possible contrast to draw there too, um, just to build on what you're saying there, Sam? Because she's consciously taken steps to learn sword fighting and improve her skills, so it's something that she has gained herself and is maybe more intrinsic. Whereas yeah. she's been told the priori has come from, well, the Kraken hit a button and a bunch of people died and it all kind of <laughs> went into this big bowl and it's yours now. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah. yeah, yeah. she's using choice to defeat Elliot and Elliot's being defeated by his own lack of choice. Mm. Mm. Nice. Yeah. But I'm sorry to see Charlie go. <laughs> well, he, he goes honourably, I suppose. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In, yeah, yeah, 
But, yeah, so I'm sorry, guys. So a very sad chapter. I don't know. I don't know if you could have ended up in the same place if Charlie hadn't died. No. No. Mm-mm. He was kind of the last tie to her old life in a way. Yeah, yeah. Well. All right, so what is it next? Is it is it is it cracking Goodreads next? Is that what we're doing next? I think after something funny rather than as somber as it's just been. Yeah, yeah no, yes. we've, we've definitely picked something to lighten the mood because, oh, my God. <laughs> Have we got a volunteer for the Kraken Goodreads theme song? I'll do it. Where did, um... Okay. <laughs> he's cracking the Goodreads. He's cracking the Goodreads. He's cracking the Goodreads for you. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> so, so Kevin has very kindly given us a clue about what the content is of our upcoming cracking good reads. <laughs> so I believe Colin has received the text. <laughs> Sorry, I've got to recover. Ah, oh, I wasn't part of the signing of this again. <laughs> oh yeah, right. Oh, that's. I'm not going to be able to get through through this without cracking up either. I think. Uh, <laughs> Bonus points if you can give us two levels of Kraken, like the powered up and the normal Kraken. What? <laughs> what? Ah, oh, now I'm excited. Yeah, right. <laughs> there are points I, don't, I, don't know what, I don't know what this is, but everyone else seems to. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't somebody saying that we were wasting Colin's talents? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go audition for this as soon as I possibly can. Yeah. <laughs> oh. oh, good lord. <clears throat> <laughs> Sorry, I'm still thinking about the theme song. Because <laughs> it goes well with this. Uh, anyway. I am Adam, Prince of Eternia, and Defender <laughs> of the Secrets of Castle Grayskull. This is Cringer, my fearless friend. Fabulous secret powers were revealed to me the day I held aloft my magic sword and said, By the power of Grayskull, I have the power. Cringer became the mighty battle cat, and I became He-Man, the most powerful man in the universe. Only a few others share this secret. Our friends, the Sorceress, Man-at-Arms, and Orko. <coughs> Together, we defend Castle Greyskull from the evil forces of Skeletor. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Oh, man. I was oh, looking at Orko like real bad like there for a second. It was like, oh, I don't think I can get this word out. I don't think I don't think this is a word that, that the Kraken oh. says. Oh. I I wasn't prepared at all. <laughs> Not even a little bit. I feel like I kinda wanna now hear Kraken doing the Shira um intro. Yeah. Oh, I've got mm. it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I've just got that on hand, obviously. So to to gently edge us back onto topic, since you know this was <laughs> one of the most brutal episodes that we've ever had, and yes. because this particular week was filled with spoiler alert, a major character death in Game of Thrones that had a lot of people going no, and a lot of other memes <laughs> showing up on the internet. Is there one character in TV or film that was killed off that just you guys just really can't cope with that just really bothers you badly? So, I recently was watching Stargate Atlantis and I was enjoying (laughs) it. It was fun, it was imaginative, (laughs) I had a good giggle, it kept me company while I did my taxes. And um, so this is obviously going to be full of spoiler alerts, this segment. So, you know. Uh, But in in season, like, three or four, 
they basically kill off the Doctor for no better reason than they wanted to show that uh, nobody was safe. Mm. And then three episodes later, they um, they killed off the like the captain of the of the whole station, and then replaced her with uh, the character of Samantha Carter from the original Stargate series. <laughs> Clearly, they thought that that would improve their ratings to some degree. Right, right. But obviously, yeah. a season later, have decided that no, their ratings aren't any better, so they kicked her off. And what? brought in the Doctor from Star Trek. <laughs> Who is obviously not the Doctor from Star Trek, but like a different character. Oh, Robert, uh, Robert Picardo. yes. Yeah, Robert, I love him. He's a great actor. Yeah. Um, but pretty pissed that they knocked <laughs> her off to bring in an old character and then they were like, mm, still not working, and then knocked her off. And so they knocked both female characters out within like two seasons. Hmm. Oh, I forgot so. Because they, because for, for as far as I can tell, because they thought that a female couldn't carry the show. That that's the mm. only reason I could think of as to why they would have oh, flipped him on. Flipped him on. Hell, that's why? pretty vomitous. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So who else? Um, for me, basically, uh, like I'm pretty forgiving for most character death in series, and I I do love basically having a show like Game of Thrones around that has the courage to kill major characters. But there's one that stands out to me, and it is Wash in Serenity. And it's not that Wash was a great character, although I did love him as a character. And there are things I love specifically about him probably more than the rest of the cast. It's that the way that it is framed and where it happens in the story, it feels like nothing more than cheap shock value because they get through everything that they're doing and they land on the planet and they're at the end of the sequence and then basically just to give us a popcorn scare and to and to jolt us out of complacency suddenly mm. we kill one of the characters and to me it felt it felt cheap and felt forced and i think honestly hmm? i think you're giving it a bit too much artistic merit i really think it was a writer tantrum it is it, um it is joss though you know joss is problematic and i love him in many ways and in other ways i'm like oh dude no um, but he's actually ad admitted it years later. I think he was appearing with Alan Tudyk at some convention. And the question was asked if Firefly had been renewed or if you knew that Serenity was going to have a sequel, if you knew that things were going to continue, would you have killed Washoff? And he went, no, kind of sheepishly. Mm. And like, I, I do understand, like, I, un I totally understand the writer tantrum. I mean, as writers, we kill people off lot but uh we mm. usually bring it back like we usually pull it back mm. at the end after many yeah. editing runs and things like that and i i agree with you kevin i think it was i don't think it was really earned in the story i i'm actually going to continue using the one that i brought up in our chat as just being an irritating death but just because it was so poorly handled was the second star trek the more recent second star trek Mm. Oh yeah, yeah. Go back into that one. The problem with that one is, and I guess spoilers, we've, we've been saying, <laughs> but it gets to this whole point where something happens to the reactor or something. I can't remember what there, what the reasoning, what, what the excuse was in the, it's the, in the film. story, though. Yeah. But yeah, like he has to go in and fix the radioactive leak or something, and so Kirk <laughs> decides to volunteer and then he's dying because he's definitely going to die at the end of that because it's so, it's so toxic but then Spock's on the other end and they're having this very tender moment and the problem mm. being is it's a direct rip off of the actual second Star Trek film where the, the characters reverse like Spock went in and did it and mm -hmm. the problem with that is in the first one it made a lot more sense for Kirk to fight Khan and Spock to make the sacrifice mm. and then they actually go through with it. Stop, stop dies. They have a funeral for him at the end of the film. Mm. And then in this one, for, for whatever reason, Spock is having a fist fight with Khan and then Kirk goes in, but then he's dead for like three seconds and then they just magic him back to life <laughs> with basically actual magic. They're just like, oh yeah, by the way, we have we have magic now, and he's uh, he's fine, and nothing went, nothing was wrong, and it's like, well, cool, that was a really impactful film that you've just ripped off, 
and then you've done it badly. Kind of a way of like, well, we're not doing it just like a word for word, like copy of it. We're, we're adding our own spin of it. It's like, yeah, but you're just mishandling it so so monumentally. And then you just immediately take away any amount of impact it could have had by just JSX machinating it into oblivion. And you're just like, right. well, cool. What was the point of the last 20 minutes of that film? I don't know. But, yeah. which was, to be fair, stuff like that had made me incredibly apprehensive for when J.J. Abrams did the Star Wars film. Mm. Yeah, right. Uh, mishandled death, I think, is, a, is, a, is an irritating thing. I'm going to go a little off the radar and talk about Torchwood, mm. and, which is a series I'm, I'm struggling to like. <laughs> I gave it a good hard shot and it's just, it's not doing it for me. I'm kind of a few episodes into series four and it's a struggle. It's a real struggle to, you know, empathize with the characters. But the end of series three was the killer for my girlfriend. And I thought it was kind of amusing because Torchwood is like, oh, it's, it's Doctor Who, but it's, it's a little bit more secret agent, but it's a little bit more soap opera, but let's put it in Cardiff and let's make everybody bisexual. Because, you know, that's how you are in Cardiff. You're all bisexual if you want to get into Torchwood. <laughs> but um, so when Ianto Jones died, my girlfriend just kind of threw her hands up and just left and went, no, I'm not watching this shit anymore. This is ridiculous. And, and you know, I kind of agree because Ianto was, you know, he started off as just the coffee boy. He was retrieving, it was being the secretary for the agency and not so much being an agent, but then he grew into it. And, you know, he was having this great relationship with Barrowman and, you know, everything was looking fantastic. And it really undercut the powerful gay relationship that was really in the making. And and it was a totally sweet character as well. And such a great actor, too. Yeah, and there was a lot of freaking out about the fact that he was gone as well. And then Series 4 has descended into this, let's try to appeal to the American market as well and failing (laughs) badly and i think it was because they really lost the heart of what the series was trying to get to and yanto went along with that you know he he died as well as the last vestiges of appeal and warmth in that series Hmm. yeah that's me cool next all right it's the show being human the british one in particular where a bunch of the actors didn't want to renew their contract, and it was the main actors, mm-hmm. so they just sort of had to get killed off. Well, they didn't have to be, uh, and that's probably where my problem is. <laughs> they uh, they killed them off and tried to carry on the show from that mm. point. Whereas if it was me writing it, I would have just gone, all right, scrap the old... Like, that was the one set in Bristol. We'll do another one set somewhere else, standing around three other supernatural creatures that are trying to be human or whatever. But, uh, yeah, that was the point where I I just struggled to keep watching that show, but it just wasn't the same. They did all these wacky stuff, and they were trying to get you to like these new characters, and I was like, no, want the old ones back. Mm. How dare you? (laughs) Just pay them more or something. Yeah, it's a really tricky intersection between writing and the realities of making a show. Like Babylon 5 is one of my favorite old sci-fi series, but it had real problems with staying on the air that messed up what was a really meticulously planned five-year series. And so that kind of screwed up season three and season four, arguably, because their time frame got compressed and then they're like, oh, we're still on the air. What do we do? Let's do a thing. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned television shows and trying to balance the vagaries of production with cast because the one that bothered me a lot goes all the way back to Homicide Life on the Street. Oh. Um, for those of you not familiar with the show, it started in like 92, 93. Actually, I think it aired immediately after the Super Bowl in 1993 because I watched it with my dad. Mm-hmm. And it went for several years, but there was a character played by John Polito called Steve Cressetti. The He auditioned for a character that was very similar to it, and he was not terribly keen on being a part of the show because the show was set and shot in Baltimore, uh, and he had just moved to Los Angeles from New York City to get work. But they tweaked the character, and they made it Italian, and they sort of wrote it for him, and he said, all right, I'll come on over. 
Now, Homicide was a show that, frankly, it was a miracle that it got made uh, mm. because it featured, oh, who's the guy who plays Munch? It's, uh, Richard um, Belzer. Yeah, Richard. So Richard Belzer was cast as one of the detectives. And NBC, which was the U.S. network that eventually accepted the show, was dead set against it. They're like, can, can, can we get like a, somebody who's more like 90210 for that character? Can we get a pretty boy? And they're like, no. <laughs> Barry Levinson said, no. Nice. Uh, so they kept these sort of rough-looking people. And, and Kay Howard, who is one of my favorite characters, played by Melissa Leo, in the first couple of episodes, she appears with makeup, but then never again. You know, she wears set makeup like the men, but she's not actually wearing um, eyeliner and eyeshadow and all that stuff. Mm. So anyway, Homicide is, I use it as an example of a polyphonic work. It's an ensemble cast. No one detective is like the protagonist or the central character. Kyle Secor could almost be in that position. He plays Tim Bayless, but he's just the audience entrance character. He's the newbie, so he's the in for the audience to understand what's going on and <laughs> be surprised by the environment. So NBC decided to go ahead and extend the show. They decided to pick up the show for another season, but they began leaning really hard on the production company to find a way to get in a pretty woman which, one, annoys me because what the hell is wrong with Melissa Leo, you rat bastards? And two, like, really? <laughs> you know, so yeah. there was pressure, there was pressure, there was pressure, and so the show pulled back on Polito's appearances and started bringing in other characters in the second season. And so Tom Fontana, who was one of the producers, said to Polito, don't worry about it. We are going to try to get you back in in subsequent seasons. We've got to respond to this pressure now, but we'll bring you back. Well, Polito let his temper get ahead of him, and he spoke out in public. And Tom Fontana caught word of it. He, could, mm. he caught wind of Polito sort of backbiting him in the press, and things went south from there. Until season three, when out of the bay, they pull up the corpse, and it's Crosetti's corpse. Oh, wow. Yeah. The story is actually very affecting. The script writers didn't have the same rancor toward Polito and Crisetti. Mm. So it's actually one of the most, if you watch the end of it, it is one of the most moving episodes like ever. Oh, wow. Because Frank Pembleton, uh, played by Andre Brower, who I adore. Mm. Frank Pembleton, is a, he's a fantastic character. He grew up in Jesuit schools, and so is very, you know, he has a deep, deep Catholic faith, but he's also one of the biggest freaking skeptics in the whole group. He was having a crisis of faith, so he didn't attend the funeral. He didn't step foot in the church. But because Crosetti was determined to have killed himself, the Baltimore Police Department would not give him a proper funeral. They wouldn't give him a procession. So... You know, while people are coming out of the church and going, oh, it's a shame Frank wasn't here. It's kind of shitty that it didn't show up. As the procession, the civilian procession, goes down the street past the police house, there's Frank Pumbleton in his blues saluting the casket as it goes by, and he is the only man in uniform to do so. Hmm. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So... What I hate is when external pressures force a creative decision, even though the results of the creative decision can be really powerful. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because it screws people over. Like, John Polito would have been quite happy to continue playing Corsetti. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Has everyone offered up their <laughs> most annoying death? All right, well, I think that brings us to the conclusion of episode 26 chapter 21 i just wanted to quickly thank everybody for coming by and showing up and chatting and welcome. sharing all kinds of spoilers mm. <laughs> yeah. Ouch. and uh we will catch you all very soon for the subsequent chapter and the subsequent the episode penultimate chapter second to last <sighs> Really? Oh, goodness. Thanks for joining us, guys. All right, bye. All right, goodbye. Bye. See ya, good night. Puppies, look at this me. This is the entirety of the gag rail for Puppies. this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you 
away. Oh, shit, is someone recording? Oh, you're recording. I am. Don't run away. There you are. No. So the Kraken is basically torturing Elliot. <laughs> Excellent. Wait, the Kraken's the bad guy? Yeah. Wait a minute. Oh. oh you couldn't tell. I've been doing this all wrong. Pay attention. Ow. Someone's going to be town person one. <laughs> Where all of a sudden this lady appears in the fountain. They're like, holy crap. Fucking what? That's what? I was just keeping to the Sam plays the assholes. First you get the puppies. <laughs> then you get the Kraken good reads. It appears... Your services as an agent are again useful. Perhaps a bit petty? <laughs> yeah. A little aside to strike fear into your heart. Maester. Medallion, please. I'm old Greg. Papuri. Papuri? <laughs> Josh is impressed that he has his nuts. Oh, God, it's like I'm a stoner, but I don't get the benefits of actually smoking anything. Priori the Podcast is a full cast audio of the fantasy novel Priori, written by Emily Craven, the author of the Grand Adventures of Madeline Kane series. The podcast is produced by Emily Craven and Kevin Powell and contains the voiceover talents of Emily, Kevin, Sam Piaggio, Colin Smith and Lois Spangler. Intro and outro music is thanks to composer Christopher Healy. Our audio intern is the amazing David Fithian. Each weekly episode contains a chapter of Priori, as well as a gag reel and chat with the cast. To find out more about Priori, Emily, the cast, or to sign up to the newsletter of Awesome, go to www.originalfantasy.com forward slash Priori podcast. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider while you're at the website donating the price of a cup of coffee towards us paying our wonderful voiceover actors. These guys have freely donated their time for this project and Emily would like to shower them with riches so they'll consider creating more podcasts with her and for you in the future.